0: Let's give
1: attention now to reading God's word.
0: Good morning. My name is Nick Anders, and this morning's scripture passage is Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And this can be found on page 1153 in the Bible under the seat in front of you. That's page 1153. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Nick. Well, let's remind ourselves of why the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. We've been in our series called Astonish now for some weeks, and I suspect you know the answer to this, but just for those who have not been with us. Let me review why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. The Galatians were Gentiles who had come to believe in Jesus Christ. They had come to believe the gospel. They used to be pagans, engaged in idolatry, engaged in religious syncretism, but now they were followers of Jesus Christ. But the problem was some Jewish false teachers had convinced them. They had crept into the church and they had, confe- they had convinced these. Uh, Gentile Christians, that believing in Jesus was not enough. They needed to follow the customs and the rituals and the ceremonies of Judaism if they hoped to win the approval and the favor and the love of God. Now, these false teachers, we usually call them Judaizers, they were telling the Galatians basically a brand new formula. Jesus plus something equals salvation. Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. Jesus plus following the rabbinical laws equal salvation. Jesus plus observing the weekly and monthly and annual feasts. Jesus plus something equals salvation was the idea that the Judaizers were spreading within the Galatian church. So Paul writes this letter to warn the Galatians that if they followed the teachings of these Judaizers, they would be embracing a different gospel he calls it that in chapter 1, a different gospel, which was, he said, really no gospel at all. It was a gospel of works instead of faith, a gospel of law instead of grace. And so, in today's text that you've heard read, the Apostle Paul is practically on his hands and knees begging these Galatian Christians to come back to the gospel. He says in verse 17, Those people, and he's talking about those Judaizers, those people, those false teachers are zealous to win you over, but they're zealous for no good. They only want to use you, I hear Paul say. They only want to control you. They only want to brag to their friends back in Jerusalem that they've made one more convert out of you people. And he says in verse 19, My dear little children, My dear little impressionable children, I feel like I'm a woman in the anguish of childbirth. I wish, he says, I could change my tone. I wish I could write you an encouraging letter, but I can't. I'm worried about you. Do you hear Paul's anguish? Now, full disclosure, I've never had a baby. And Paul never had a baby either. But imagine the... Depth to which he feels for his Galatian friends when he says, I, I, I'm in the pains of childbirth. I feel like a woman in labor over you until Christ is formed in you. They were on his mind night after night and keeping him awake at night, right? And he was feeling the loss of these people. It was almost like he was losing them and they were, they were dropping out of sight of him, out of his heart, out of his care. Some of you can relate to Paul. Some of you have a friend who turned his back on the gospel. Some of you have a friend who walked away from his wife and kids. Some of you have a friend who walked away from her husband into the arms of another lover. So you can relate to Paul. You can feel a little bit of his sense of loss and concern over these Galatian friends. Some of you have invested your life in somebody only to have them throw it back in your face. So if that's true of you, put yourself in the shoes of Paul and feel his anguish and his concern over the Galatians in chapter 4. He's pleading with them. Those words in verse 15 really caught my attention where he says to the Galatians, what has happened to all your joy? What's happened to all the joy you had? Why are you no longer happy in Christ? Do you see what you're doing to yourself, Paul says in this chapter? All right. So with that bit of introduction, here's how I'd like to approach our text today. In this text, chapter 4, verse 1 through 20, I hear Paul asking the Galatians three questions. And we'll use these three questions as an outline to better understand what's going on. First, he asks them, Do you remember what you were? Second, he asks them, don't you realize who you are? And third question he asks is, why would you want to go back? All right, so let's dive into chapter four. First, Paul is asking his Galatian disciples, do you remember what you were? Let's look together at verses one through three. He says in verse one, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, He is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. All right, now Paul in this passage is using an analogy. He's using an analogy that the people that he's writing to will be completely familiar with. You and I, maybe not. But he's saying... I want you to think about a little boy in Roman society. And the word that he uses for child means toddler. I mean, this is a little preschool boy in verses 1 through 3. Paul is saying to the Galatians, this little boy is going to grow up one day and inherit his father's whole estate. But right now, he's a little kid. Right now, he's a little kid. He can't take care of himself. And suppose the parents are deceased. This little boy has to have a nanny or a babysitter or a legal guardian watch over him day and night. And even though, says Paul, even though he's the heir of the family fortune, right now, he's no better off than a slave. He has to be spoon-fed. He has to have his diapers changed. He has to have a nightlight on in his bedroom at night. In other words, This little boy, even though he is the family heir, H-E-I-R, he is really getting no benefit from his father's estate whatsoever. And Paul says, you used to be like that. You Galatian Christians, you used to be like that. You weren't mature. In fact, you were, he says in verse 3, in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Now, we have to stop right there and dwell on that phrase, basic principles of the world. It's also mentioned by him down in verse 9, the second half of verse 9, where Paul says, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? You might want to underline that word principles in verse 3 and also in verse 9. It's the Greek word stoicheia. Maybe in your translation it says something different, elementary principles, something like that. In fact, this word stoicheia is so puzzling to modern translators that almost every different translation version of the Bible renders it differently. It's the Greek word stoicheia. That word is in two of Paul's letters. It's here in Galatians, it's also in Colossians, and it also shows up in the book of Hebrews. And you see this word translated as as things like spiritual principles, powers, rudimentary teachings, elementary things of the world. Literally, the word means elements, elements like things that are arranged side by side in a row. For instance, the ABCs, the the alphabet, that would be the elements of the alphabet to use an example. So some commentators say, when they're translating this, that what Paul is talking about are the simple elementary truths of the gospel. How but but I don't I don't buy that. That doesn't seem right. How would the elementary or simple truths or the ABCs of the gospel bring people into slavery? So I don't think that's right. Other commentators say Paul is talking about basic elements of the physical universe. Air, water, fire. Earth. Other commentators say he's talking about the ruling spirits of the universe, the angelic and the demonic world. And still others say that Paul's talking about the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon and the stars. Well, the more I thought about it, the more I think all of them have a little angle on the truth. All of those things are right to a certain degree. So let me explain what I see Paul is talking about in verse 3 when he talks about them being in slavery under the basic principles of the world. And one of Tim Keller's sermons that I listened to a long time ago helped me with this quite a lot. Let's remember who these Gentile, these uh, Galatians were. They were Gentiles for the most part. They were saved out of... Paganism, out of the paganism of the Greco Roman world. And in the Roman culture of Paul's day, pagans believed that behind every element, there's that word, behind every element in the universe was a god, a little g god. You know, there was a sun god, there was an ocean god, there was a moon god, there was an agriculture god, there was a water god. There was a god of the sea, a god of the stars, etc. There was the god of partying, Bacchus. There was the god of war, Ares. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty and pleasure. You've heard some of these names. Well, this was the Roman world. This was paganism back in Paul's time. Every person had their own god. And they would pray to this god. And they would sacrifice to this god. And they would do this God's bidding and they would, uh, you know, they would they would follow after this God, whatever the God expected of these people to do in order to earn their favor. Well, these were the stoicheia. These were the spirits behind every basic element or created thing in the universe that people back in that day worshipped. And it's that that's what Paul. That's what Paul is talking about in verse eight where here's a big clue that we're on the right track. Because in verse 8 he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. You see that? So he's talking about these spirits behind the elementary things of the world that people back in that culture would put their trust in. So you see that Paul's words to these Galatians could not be more relevant for today, right? He's saying... Uh, Anything in the universe, whether it's, you name it, whether it's money or children, family, house, sex, your business, having fun, going to the beach, making good grades, um, having a boyfriend, having a girlfriend, all of those things, anything can be an object of worship. Anything can be the basis of your hope. Anything can be the basis of your religion. In other words, anything can be an idol. And Paul is saying there in verse 8 to these Gentile Christians who had been saved out of idolatry, out of paganism, he's saying this, when you used to worship your idol, whatever it was, your little G God, you were enslaved to that spirit. You treated it like a god. But like he says in verse 8 it's not a god. It's not capable of giving you what you want from it. It's not capable of delivering on your hopes. As verse 9 says it's weak and it's miserable. In other words it's powerless and it's poor. It's weak and it's worthless. Every one of these stoicheia are weak and worthless. They cannot deliver on their promises. Make it a little more personal. Take me, for example. There was a stoicheia in my life before I became a Christian. God saved me. And one of the idols from which he saved me was music. Now, music is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Just like all those other things that I listed are good things. But what idolatry means is it's taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. And so I turned music into an ultimate thing. I looked to music to validate me, it was, for all intents and purposes, my religion. I used to write songs. This is back in my college days. I used to write songs. I used to perform in coffee houses at my university. And I got so much affection and so much attention from performing in these coffee houses that I had to do them. Now, you didn't know that if you knew me then. But inside me, I was jealous. I was angry when I wasn't Invited to perform in these coffee houses when other people were invited to perform. I was madly insanely jealous of them and I had to be the best. I was a perfectionist when it came to my music and when I wasn't the best, I was very, very angry when I wasn't asked to perform. I was very, very depressed and as I said jealous of other students that got attention for their music and I relished I rested in all of the accolades and all of the attention that music brought to me. Do you do you see what you see? How idolatry works? That was idolatry for me. I was driven by it. An idol, you see, is anything at all, even good things like music, that you put in the place of the one true God it's an idol an idol is anything you look to in your heart for validation anything that you rest in anything you depend on to make your life worth living an idol is whatever takes functional ownership of your heart and says i must rule there i must control there it's whatever you adore besides god martin lloyd jones a An author, a preacher over in the UK that many of you have heard of, he wrote this wonderful definition of an idol. Listen to it. An idol, he said, is anything in my life that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. An idol is anything that is central to me, anything that seems to be essential and absolutely necessary. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. An idol is anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts me so easily that I give my time, my attention, my energy, and my money to it effortlessly. Good definition. And if you're honest, if you really look into your own life through the lens of idolatry, you begin to find out that idolatry underlies every sin you ever commit. The idol is what stimulates you to break God's law and do things that are wrong. When you lust after somebody that you're not married to, there's an idol in your heart that's calling you to lust. When you worry about the future, there's an idol in your heart that's calling you to worry. When you're jealous of somebody else's advantages... There's an idol in your heart that is causing you to be discontent with who you are and what you have when you're bitter, when you can't forgive someone, when you judge somebody else, when you lie, when you steal, when you covet whatever the sin might happen to be. There's an idol down underneath that sin. It's the sin beneath the sin that so often we don't pay attention to. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. Everybody worships something. There's really, in in one very real sense, there's really no person who is irreligious. Every single human being is religious because we must worship something. But the bad news is, when you hold on to that idol and make room for it in your heart, you become its slave. You do. You become its slave. It steals your joy, right? It steals your freedom. You give your money to it. You give your time to it. You give your family to it. You sacrifice your family. You give up sleep for it. It controls you. It tells you what to do and where to go and how to be happy. That's the sense in which I mean you become its slave. And for all of its promises, an idol cannot deliver a thing. An idol is just an empty shell. An empty shell of promises that will always disappoint you. Now here's the rub when we come to Galatians 4. Even religious practice can be stoicheia. That's the whole point of verses 9 and 10. Look again at verse 9. He says, now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable stoicheia? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Now notice what he says they're doing. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. So listen, folks, the Galatians are not going back to paganism. They're going the direction of religious legalism. The Galatians were trading one form of slavery, that is, their old pagan ways, for another form of slavery. They had become Christians. They had been set free. You know, they had experienced the joy of the Lord. But now, thanks to the teaching of these Judaizers that had crept into their midst, the Galatians were putting their trust Not in pagan gods, little g-gods, but in Jewish rituals. Circumcision, you know, things like I said earlier, annual feasts, monthly festivals, Passover, tabernacles, harvest, year of jubilee, and so on and so forth. They were turning from paganism to religious legalism and moralism. And I ask you, which is worse? Religious moralism and legalism is really worse than paganism. Because you think you've got God on your side. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. What do you have in the parable of the prodigal son? You have a pagan, the younger brother, and you have a religious legalist, the older brother. And both did not run to the father until finally the younger brother came to his senses. Both were running away from the father. But the religion, the older brother really had it worse because he thought he was right. He was so locked into being right that that was really worse and he was the one who never came back to the father like the younger brother did. So Paul, Paul sees their, Paul sees what they're doing and he says there in this book, Dear Galatians, don't you remember? Don't you remember? Slaves were what you were. Slaves were what you were. Have you totally forgotten the gospel of grace? He says in chapter four, I fear that all my efforts have been a waste. So the first question that Paul asks the Galatians is, do you remember who you were? But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to ask a second question. Don't you realize who you are? And here's where things really get good in Galatians 4. Don't you realize who you are? Look with me at verses 4 through 7. He says to the Galatians, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave But a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Now, a word to you, women and girls. Please don't be offended by Paul's use of the word son here. The reason he says son and he doesn't say son and daughter is that he's not talking about gender, he's talking about status. And everything that he says about a son applies just as much to believing women and believing girls as it does to believing men and believing boys. He's talking about status. You see, according to Roman law, a father could adopt an orphaned young man. A father could even adopt an adult. A father could even adopt a slave. And that person would become legally a whole new person. Adoption would give this person a whole new set of the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities of the new family. Just as though he were born into that family as a natural born son. Listen to this. All of his debts would be canceled when he was adopted. Any criminal charges that were against him would suddenly be dropped when he was adopted. And this adopted person would become an heir of the father and he could never be disinherited. And Paul is using that custom of adoption in the Roman world as a way of explaining who you are as God's child. You have the status of a fully mature son in the family of God. You've been removed out of the kingdom of darkness and welcomed into God's household. You've become a whole new person. God has given you a new heart with a new identity and all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that go along with the sons of God. Think about that. All charges against your record have been dropped because of the doctrine of adoption. All debts that you owe God, the debt of your sin has been canceled because of the blood of Jesus. Um, God is uh, n- no longer just your lawgiver. He is no longer just your judge. He is now your father. You're his child. You've been adopted. I went through uh, a, a number of scriptures that bring out what adoption means. And I came up with a list of ten things I want you to see this list. I will put this on the on my blog on the church website so you don't have to feel like you have to write all this down. But here's a list of ten things that the Bible teaches that adoption means. And there are many more than this, but here's ten. First, adoption means that God wanted you to be his child. Do you get that? Because when someone adopts somebody, it's not because they have to, it's because they want to. God adopted you because he wanted you, you specifically, To be in his family. Secondly, adoption means that God will never let you go. He's protecting you and he's providing you for you all the time, even when you don't see it. And he'll be sure to get you home one day. Third, it means that you have continual access to God. You can call God by the most intimate term known to man. Abba. Abba, Aramaic for Daddy, it's what little kids would call to their fathers. You can call God daddy if you want to. You can know him that intimately. Number four, it means that God has made you brand new. You're a new person. Number five, it means that God's attitude toward you is always one of love, even when you fail. Number five, uh, rather number six, it means that God, that Jesus is your elder brother. Think of that. Number seven, it means that you'll be disciplined in love when you go astray. And that's a good thing. Number eight, it means that you're a member of the household of faith, along with all of your brothers and sisters who also trust in Christ. Number nine, it means that you have a glorious inheritance awaiting you. And finally, it means that you have a great incentive, great motivation to want to be like God and to share his love with other people. See, when you really believe that God is your father and that you're secure in his love and you've been adopted into his family, it gives you such joy that you can't help but share that with other people. It just bleeds out of you. Now, this list of ten things we could add to it as well is what motivated the great theologian John Murray to write one time that adoption is the apex of redemptive grace and privilege. In other words... It's not old Milwaukee, it's adoption that we can say, it doesn't get any better than this. It doesn't get any better than adoption. Adoption is the climax of our grace that we have in Christ. It doesn't get any better than that. Now you might be asking, particularly if you're not a Christian this morning, if you're you're new to the Christian faith, how in the world can this be possible? How can it be that someone who was once a slave to sin and idolatry can become an adopted son or daughter of God. Well, it's because of verse 4. It's because of verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son to redeem you, to purchase you, in other words, out of your sin and out of your misery and bring you into the family of God. See, friends, Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I are required to live by the law. He died the death that you and I deserve to die because of our sin. He rose again that we might receive the full rights of sons. Your salvation rests in him, not on what you do for him, but on what he's done for you in Christ. And verse 6 tells us even further. Part of our adoption is that God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who cries out or calls out in us and through us to Abba, Father. In short, who are you? Who are you? You are a forgiven, righteous, holy, accepted, fully mature fully redeemed child of the king and you should never, never look at yourself any other way. How dare you look at yourself any other way than what God has said about you as his child? No qualification is needed apart from helpless faith in Jesus. You don't have to fulfill some extra condition to be Adopted by God and loved by God. You don't have to check off a bunch of boxes or satisfy the demands of some program. You are God's child. God has sent the spirit of his son into your heart. You are no longer a slave, but a son. Which brings us to Paul's third and final question. Why would you ever want to go back? If you're a child of God, a child of the king, secure in his love, why would you ever want to get under the basic principles, the stoicheia of the world? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again, he says in verse 9? How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? You know, let me let me talk to you a moment. Maybe some of you that I'm speaking to this morning, maybe some of you in the in the room today, are like the Galatian Christians. Perhaps you embraced Christ by faith. And God filled you with joy. He knew that He took away your sins. You felt free at last. Released from bondage. But then somewhere along the way, you got the idea that for God to really love you, you know, for you to really be in on the in crowd of God, you had to do something more. You had to pray in a certain way. You had to go to certain events and activities. You had to commit to certain groups. You had to follow the practices of some person that you looked up to. And so you tried, you know, you tried to follow the party line, whatever it was. And at first it felt good and at first it felt right. But after a while, you began to feel like a fake. It wasn't really you. You realized you were just going through the motions Somewhere along the way, Christianity stopped being about a relationship and started being about being right. Having rituals and rules in your life. Christianity stopped being about Jesus and started being about you. It stopped being about uh, your heart and started being about your behavior. Maybe that fits some of your experiences. And somewhere along the way, you lost your joy. Anybody resonate with that? You lost your joy. I want to ask you, like Paul asked the Galatians, what happened to it? How can you get it back? And I think the answer is hidden in verse 9. How to get back your joy is in verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, now that you know God, are rather are known by God. Now there's the key to restoring your joy. To remember that you've been known by God. It's not so much about you knowing God. It's about God knowing you. He knew you before you were born. He chose you to be His own. He loves you. It's what He's done for you, not what you've done for Him that counts. So don't turn back to those weak and miserable principles. You're a son or daughter of the Father. Don't ever forget that. He redeemed you through... His Son, and gave you His Spirit. Believe the gospel of grace. Believe in your adoption. And never let that go. I want you to do two things this week, if you will. Two things. Number one, as a way to follow up on this sermon. Number one, there's an insert inside your worship guide that says orphans versus sons exercise. I'd like you to take that exercise this week. Maybe do it with your life group and talk about what you've discovered. Do it in your family. Do it with your spouse or children or parents. Fill out that little exercise because the purpose of it is to help you see if in fact you're floating back toward Stoicheia instead of Jesus. You're becoming to think like an orphan instead of a son. And the second thing I'd like you to do this week is to remind yourself five times a day, every day this week, of what it says in verse 7. Look again at verse 7, and let's personalize it, okay? Let's personalize verse 7. I am no longer a slave, but a son. And since I am a son, God has made me also an heir. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. It may sound hokey to you, but I think it's important. Five times a day, when you wake up, When you eat breakfast, when you eat lunch, when you eat dinner, and then before you go to sleep, would you recite verse 7? I am no longer a slave, but a son. And because I am a son, God has made me also an heir. By the end of the week, you'll have verse 7 memorized. And maybe it will begin to fill you with such joy that you will not be able to contain it. You will act and think and feel like an adopted son or daughter of the king. And you will share that joy with the many thousands of people around us who are not yet his sons and daughters. Let's pray. Our Father, just the thought of you adopting us into your family is really amazing. Because here we get to the heart of what it means to be your children. It's freedom, not bondage. Lord, even the service we owe you and one another is freedom. So we pray today that you will form Christ in us, Lord, that we we want to take that prayer of the Apostle Paul at the end of the text and pray earnestly that you will form Christ in us, that you will help us run from our idols into the arms of Abba, Father. We pray to you, Holy Spirit, you who have been given to us by the Father to fill us and to remind us of our adoption. We ask you, Spirit of God, to bring us back again and again to the gospel and to the truth that we've been adopted. Lord, help us, please, to refuse to be enslaved by the stoicheia of life that constantly tempt us to worship things that by nature are not God's. Lord, we know this is so important to your heart because if we're going to be your disciples, we have to live as though We believe we are adopted. So give us, Lord, we pray, a fresh bath in the gospel of grace. And may your word take root deeply in our hearts and turn us away from weak and miserable principles to the gospel of Jesus. And we pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen.